I'm going to read some stuff, and then we'll, we'll go to We're actually going to be in Genesis 2. Um, that's where we're going to end up, and then Hebrews 4 at some point, maybe. <clears throat> I don't think the teaching of rest, we talked about last week, can live with just one Sunday. It's so crucial to the story of creation, man, God, and ultimately who we are within all of that. Rest is a package of trust and an awareness of the reality around us. But rest is also protection. Protection against what? Protection against control. Rest is protection against control. Now just hang with me for a little bit. So the story of Genesis could be summarized with this phrase. If you were summarizing the whole book, the story of Genesis, it could be summarized with this phrase. This is what happens when we take control. I mean, you could say that and you get the whole book of Genesis, right? The flood. What happens? A group of people lose their minds and God says, I wish I had never created them. The flood happens. Tower of Babel. Man, we're going to build a name. We're going to make a name for ourselves. Language is scattered. You know, it's, it's just all a take control, lose something. Take control, lose something. People will read these stories, and they'll point out how God is a God who's mean and takes stuff and completely miss over the fact that the only reason people lost stuff was because they stopped living in who they were. He never intended to take the Garden of Eden away. You understand that? It was never God's plan to take the Garden of Eden away. He had to protect them from going to the tree of life because they had made the decision to turn away from God. Okay? So this whole, this whole idea that is flying in our culture right now that God is mean because this happens and he's angry because this happens and God is not loved because this happens, every one of those this happens things is rooted back to a choice of a man or a woman. Y'all understand this? So people love, man, I'm, a, I'm just, people love free will. I say this all the time. People love free will until somebody in free will does something that affects them negatively. Then all of a sudden, free will's the worst, right? So free will's amazing when I get to choose my own path. But free will stinks when somebody does something against me, and then I start saying, well, if God was a God of love, why did that happen? No, 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 no. You know what I'm saying? You can't have both. We either got free will or we don't. And let me help you. We do. Okay? All right. Some of y'all have no idea how big of a statement I just made. People are so mad already watching this. Free will. What's he talking about? He thinks he's Jesus. <clears throat> if I had a dollar for every time somebody mentioned that, I'd be, um, I'd be so rich. Um, brother, he thinks he's Jesus. We weren't designed to be creatures of control. And making things happen on our own. We were designed to be creatures of dependence. Okay? We were not designed to be creatures of control. We were designed to be creatures of dependence. The story I continually go back to, I feel like on a weekly, if not daily basis, is Genesis 1 through 3. This, of course, is the root of everything else in Scripture. So discovering the richness in Genesis and what it's actually telling us is key to understanding the whole rest of the book of the Bible and the story of you and I. So like reading a novel, if you start halfway through, you miss the entire meaning. And that's why I tell you, you've got to start at the beginning if you're going to read through your Bible. Most people will pick it up in Matthew. 
and read through. Matthew all the way to Revelation, the New Testament, does not make sense if you've never read the Old Testament. That's not how it was designed. You understand this? So, so many people will teach things and they'll say things and they'll believe things because they read something in the New Testament that is taken so out of context of the Old Testament. It's not even funny. And we'll build theology around this. That's why there's so many denominations. It's because most of those people never just read the Bible front to back. I, I guarantee you, if every, and I could be wrong, if every leader of every denomination would just start at Genesis, go to Revelation by the end of this year, we'd close down half our denominations. Man, we believe that. That ain't in here. Right? Okay, so how does our story start out? How does our story start out? It start, And I'm going to use language of, of Hebrews and Jewish uh, kind of language, so y'all just hang with me if it sounds different than maybe what you've originally heard. So how does our story start out? It starts out with a poem on creation, climaxing at the creation of man, and ultimately, the Sabbath. To get some context of where we're going, it's key to understand who wrote this, when he wrote it, and to whom he wrote it. Okay? So this is where kind of the teaching stuff comes in. So y'all just hang with me. To understand Genesis, you really need to understand who wrote Genesis, when he wrote Genesis, and to whom he wrote it to. Okay, this wasn't just some book that fell out of the sky on the third day and was like, here you go, there's Genesis. Okay, y'all with me? Uh, Some people are super shocked by that. Traditionally, traditionally, it's held that Moses wrote Genesis. Scholars today will try to fight about that. I think there's a lot of evidence that Moses wrote Genesis, at least the beginning part of Genesis, which is where we're going to be today. So traditionally, it is held that Moses wrote Genesis, just like the other first five of the books of the Bible. Uh, There's a few things to note here. Genesis' story happened long before writing existed. Okay? So the story of Genesis happened way before writing or writing things down existed. So it was intended to be an oral story or tradition that would be passed down, okay? Modern scholars see Genesis as having many authors over centuries leading up to the Babylonian exile. Authorship is nearly impossible to nail down, okay, on something that was an oral story. This is where this argument comes in because Genesis was written to be an oral story. Obviously, there's... there's, there's um a back and forth on who actually came up with Genesis. That's why. Because there's no writing we can go back to except for the early transcripts, okay? None of this matters. I'm just kind of giving y'all some backstory to what we're going to say today, okay? However, it makes sense to me, and most traditional scholars in almost any study Bible will tell you Moses would have actually written Genesis along with Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, or as the Jews call it, the the Torah, uh, this story, this story in Genesis, assuming Moses' authorship, would have been made public to the Israelites in the wilderness. This is very huge for where we're going today. Okay? This story would have made public, been made public to the Israelites in the wilderness after Egypt, but before the promised land. 
is when they would have heard this for the first time. Okay, It was written to the Israelites. The early portion of Genesis that we're going to hang out in today is focused on two things. Two things. Who Yahweh is and why mankind is his crown jewel. Genesis 1, and I said this last week, was not written as a mathematic equation to how many days were there, what does a day mean, why did he do this on this day, why did he do that. It wasn't a mathematical equation. The whole point of Genesis 1 is to show us two things, who God is and why mankind is so important. That's it. So there's a lot of other depth of meaning. And if you break this down, there's a, there's a really great podcast that Matt shared with me. I'll have to share with y'all that uh, goes even deeper into some of this stuff. But uh, if you break Genesis 1 down, it's a Hebrew poem called a chiasm. And what that means is it has a rhythm. So day 1 and 3 line up. Day 2 and 4 line up. Excuse me. Uh, let me. Let me get my math right. Okay, day 1 and 4 are about light. Day two and five are about the sky and the, uh, and the water, okay, or fish and birds in day five. And then day three is about land and seed-bearing things. And then day six is about all animals and man who eat seed-bearing things. You ready? Or, so you see how, so it's, a, it's a Hebrew poem called a chiasm. When that happens, you can typically go to the center of those, kind of the way that's laid out, and the beginning and the end, and find what the author is actually trying to say, okay? And that's why I love the Hebrew language is because it's laced in underlying discovery kind of meaning, okay? So what do we find in the beginning of the story, in the middle of the story, and in the end of the story? Right? Because this is where you can tell what he was writing Genesis 1 to tell us. Ready? Genesis 1, the very first thing we know about anything is that God, the Godhead, existed eternally in rest before anything was created. So you have rest. Eternity. Eternity. In the middle of creation, you have the creation of time. This is so huge. You ready? In the middle of creation, what is it? You have what he writes. If you read Genesis 1.14, it says this. Uh, let lights appear in the sky to separate day and night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, the days, and the years. So time comes into the picture right here. So you have eternity, you have time, and then how does the story end? Sabbath, which does not have an ending. So eternity, time, and then eternity. So, so what, is, what, is, what is Genesis 1 trying to tell us? You ready? I mean, this is going to mess with some of you. You ready? What is Genesis 1? What Genesis 1 was written to teach us was primarily the importance of Sabbath. Some people are just so mad. It tells us how creation came to be. But what does it all climax in? It climaxes on the God who does not get tired resting. Remember, where are they when they're hearing this? In the wilderness, on their way into the land of what? Rest. In Egypt, going back to last week, every single thing they accomplished that was worth anything was because of work. 
in the promised land, every single thing that they see, taste, and are a part of is a result of what? Not work, rest. So what is Moses trying to teach them? He's teaching them that you're about to go into a land that's not going to be because of your work. You're going to go into a land that's primarily marked by your rest. Prove it. Okay, awesome. Yahweh rested on the seventh day. Y'all with me? Okay, this is so huge. So this is, I'm teaching y'all a whole college course right now, so y'all just hang with me. So this is huge. This is huge in understanding what we're about to read. Okay, and I'm not going to read Genesis 1, but what we're about to read. To make sense, you need to understand the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, are not five individual stories. There's not five individual chopped up stories, but one cohesive story. Genesis is chapter 1 in a five and ultimately 66 chapter book. Right? So it's not, here's Genesis, put that aside. Here's Leviticus, put that aside. Here's Exodus, put that aside. It's like you read the whole book of Genesis and there's chapter one of your story. It's not the story, there's chapter one. And then you go into Exodus, there's chapter two. And then you get to the end of the Bible, there's chapter 66 and you've just read the whole story. Do you understand how this works? So these aren't just because they're labeled. The labels in your Bible are not divine. They're not divinely inspired. The numbers in your Bible are not divinely inspired. The Lord did not say, all right, Genesis 1.14, make sure you write this. All right, Genesis 1.15, make sure you write this. That was all given to us to help us, but that's not how this thing was written. It was written all the way down. Right? Awesome. Okay, so Genesis is not scientific. It isn't answering laws of science. It's explaining who God is and how he relates to the created world, specifically Israel at that point and the promised land they're about to inherit against a worldview at that point, against a worldview where many gods were doing many different things. Genesis teaches us the Yahweh who brought Israel out of Egypt is one who created everything. This would have flown in the face of what they were taught in Egypt. That culture in this time when they're receiving this was taught primarily that there were many different gods doing many different things. And here comes Moses saying, no, the Yahweh that brought you out of Egypt is the one God who created everything through his one existence. And ultimately, we would find out three persons. So there's one Yahweh who did all of this against a backdrop of what they were taught, which is there's many different gods doing many different things. So you kind of see why when Moses is on the mountain, they start building calves. Because none of this makes sense to them. Y'all with me? Okay. <clears throat> so, it's like he's saying through this, you can trust me because I made everything. When you're reading this story, you can almost get a sense that Yahweh is speaking through the text saying, you can trust me because I made everything. Remember, because when is he speaking this? He's speaking this before they're going into the promised land. In other words, you can trust me to come into my promise of rest because I created all this anyway. Okay, awesome. 
So it's hard for Westerners, us Americans, it's hard for Westerners to get our minds around this. But Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are poetic in nature, calling us to look beyond the surface and daring us to forget the equation our culture demands to be solved instead and instead discover the nature of a papa who loves us and designed everything with the purpose of trust and rest. It's so difficult for us in the West, and I mentioned this last week, to get beyond the equation. Why didn't he do this? Why didn't he do this? Why did he do this? That must mean he doesn't love people, and that must mean he's crazy, and that must mean he's distant, and that must mean heaven's far away, and that must mean he's coming to rapture us. <laughs> so so, so we, we, get, we get in this mindset of needing in the West, because again, our philosophy is based on how we can figure out all the unanswered questions. Whereas the Eastern philosophy that the Old Testament was written in was focused on, this is what we know, therefore this is what we trust in. And the rest, we're just going to have faith about. Right? So I said this, people weren't sitting around complaining, well, are we predestined or do we have free will? No one was doing that. No one. Hey, did you just eat that, you know, bite of that fruit because the Lord like pulled a lever and you did that? Or did you actually do that in free will? Nobody's doing that. You know what they're doing? Yahweh said to rest. So you know what we're going to do on the Sabbath? We ain't going to do anything. We're going to rest. Because that's what we know. You know what I'm saying? They went, well, I wonder if day one, I wonder if that meant a thousand years. Because that verse in Peter, you know, about like one day in a thousand years, you know, all that stuff. So I wonder if that one day actually meant this because this is what science says. That, that's not what they were doing. We spend years and years and years fighting about things the Bible is not focused on teaching us. Who cares? Let me help you. Who cares if day one was 24 hours or a billion hours? Who cares? The main thing is to know that Yahweh said. That's all you got to know. And the rest, you can close it up and trust. And one day when we're standing before Jesus, we can ask him, was it 24 hours? If that's what you're going to ask him, you do your thing. I, I don't care. That ain't what I'm going to be talking about. Right? I'm going to be talking about how I can walk on water. That's what I'm going to talk about. But that's a joke. But anyway, do you see what I'm saying? So, so we, we, have, we have so many people leaving the faith today. Leaving the faith. I, I hate that phrase because that means they never have faith in the first place. They're not leaving what you never had. But there are people leaving the faith, leaving Christianity today, and it's not because of what they know. It's because of what they don't know. Right? So I, how could God do this if this? Listen, that's not in Scripture, so don't worry about it. Just trust and know that He is God. Be still and know. Faith is the evidence of things hoped for and the assurance of things you don't see. So Christianity is a faith relationship. Don't be surprised when you have to have faith. What? Like, boom, shock. Faith, but brother, nobody said that about me. Because while we were all repeating prayers, nobody mentioned what it actually means to be born again. So you got people walking, man, I'm a, are you a Christian? Yeah, absolutely, I'm a Christian. Okay, well, do you believe in Jesus? Huh? You're right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I go, I'll go to church every now and then. No, 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 that's not what I'm talking Have you been born again? Do you know why you were born again? Can you be born again without an emotional piano? 
You, you see what I'm saying? Like, I was, I was talking, I, I mentioned this to Holly this morning, but we, we've got to recapture what the purpose of the church was. We've got to recapture it. We have a hard time getting, not us, but we have a hard time getting people to show up to church on a consistent basis. What? That's, that, 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 that blows my mind that you got people in China getting their heads chopped off for going to church, and you got people in America that'll go to the lake before they go to church. Blows my mind. I think what we need is a revival, and I don't think it's going to look like what people want it to look like. I think it's going to look like showing us the ugliness of what we have called Christianity. It was never intended to be a religion. Christianity is not a religion. That's not what we do. It's a relationship. Let me tell you something. If I don't talk to my wife for a year, guess what kind of marriage we're going to have? Not good. So how have we expected this to be any other way? Because we bought into the lie that this was a religion, that if you show up to church and you wear the right stuff and you repeat the right prayers and you get baptized on this day and you do this this day and you do this this day, then you'll be saved. Nope. If you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior and step into covenant, you will be saved. And then immediately after that, this is what we want to do. Lord, I'm chasing so many rabbits right now, but it feels good. Okay? This, this, right? This is what, because I'm, I'm so passionate about us getting this right. Because we've got kids in that kid's room that I promise you will not grow up in the church like I, not that mostly I grew up in, but that most everybody else has grown up in. Right? I don't want to dishonor. She, she's not going to grow up knowing what apathy is towards God. If, if it takes my life. She's not going to know that. All of us know what that is because we've seen it. We, most of us have done it, right? She's, she's not going to know that. Why? Because she's going to have a dad that's willing to lose every single amount of influence that I have in order to get this thing right. I, I refuse to let people in China go above me and beyond me in worship when we live in a free country. I refuse to do that. I won't do that. But this... We've made salvation so works-based. And I'm not talking about earning salvation. I'm talking about what's one of the first things that happens when you do repeat a prayer? Brother, we need to get you volunteering. We, we, need, to get you, we need to get you doing the ministry. We need to get you, you got a, you got a, you, man, you got a voice. We need to get you singing. Right? It's all about the ministry. Right? It's it's all about it's all about saving it's all about the ministry. Tell me this. If you read Genesis to Revelation, I want you to tell me how much of your Bible is focused on the ministry. <laughs> People are I could just I could hear it right now. Typing. I can hear it. Right? What we see before us today is the fruit of everybody trying to go out and do ministry without ever getting conquered in the secret place. This is what we see. So we have people that aren't even sure if they believe in God trying to reach the lost. The, the church was never intended to be the place that we're bringing all our lost friends in to get saved. You were intended to save all of your lost friends and bring them into the body where we are equipped for the work of the ministry. 
right? Tell me one verse in your scripture where they show up to synagogue or the church and they're all preaching messages on a weekly basis about repeating a prayer so you don't go to hell. Tell me one verse. It's not in there. And yet thousands and thousands are getting added to their number daily. By who? Not by Peter, by the Lord. So I wonder if we could get so conquered that the Lord would start adding to our number and we could actually rest. Ministry is awesome for me. You know why? Because I'm at rest. I don't strive. And if I ever start striving, you'll see me get, send you a text. Hey, I can't meet today. Why? Because I'm getting too strivy. Right? This ain't, this ain't about me. This is about you and I being so close to the feet of Jesus that you can taste the bronze. That's what this is about. I want this to be his house. I want Columbia to be saved. I just think the way we're going to save Columbia is not by trying to save Columbia. I think the way we're going to save Columbia by getting him so present in the room that when he is lifted up, he draws all men under him, unto himself. Look at that. There's scripture right there. Woo! Okay. So today, uh, this, this, is, this is what we're seeing in Norway. These guys have been consistent and consistent and consistent. And then somebody shows up last night that is possessed by an evil spirit, shows up. I don't even know how she got there, but I guess somebody invited her, shows up to a worship night. We didn't go out offering money and gift cards and T-shirts for people to show up. Just shows up and gets delivered. That's tangible. That's what ministry is. None of us said tonight somebody's going to get delivered because we gave them a $5 Starbucks gift card and they showed up. None of us did that. We said, we're going to go. We're going to worship the Lord. And the Lord said, awesome. If my people are there, let me bring this lady on because she needs to be set free. Right? Okay. So today, today, let me bring it back. In particular, we're going to look at the massive role of rest, restraint, and dependence, and ha the role that all three of those had on the origins of man, and what that tells us for today's mankind. Okay, so let me uh, let me start here. The entire creation story is a story of explaining ultimately Sabbath, where Sabbath comes from. It's absolutely an account of how things came to be or were created, but all of it points to Sabbath. Sabbath, or Shabbat, you would mostly hear in, a, in Jewish Hebrew circles, and really in a lot of English circles too. So Sabbath means, in the Hebrew, rest or cease. Rest or cease. This happened on the seventh day, okay, seven being the number of completeness, perfection, although the Hebrews didn't have an idea of what perfect, they had, it was good. There was no perfect idea. Uh, this happened on the seventh day, which would have been a Hebrew poetic meaning or way of saying it and everything prior was good and complete. Y'all with me? So him resting or Sabbathing, Shabbat, on the seventh day would have told us two things in the Hebrew. One, that it happened on the seventh day. That meant everything happened that happened before that was complete. And two, that there was a point where God ceased and restrained his creative power. There, there's, a, there's this idea that I heard uh, in this particular podcast that pointed out so well. That um, when you're creating, the, the greatest sculptures 
on planet Earth or even paintings. They're co- and if you're a painter, so you, w- you would know this really well. Um, I'm, off, I'm a songwriter, so I guess it's the same thing. There comes a point when it's good, whatever you're working on. There comes a point when it's good, and you know if I take one more stroke of the paintbrush or if I go back and edit one more line of the song or if I go back and chisel out one more piece of this sculpture, it's going to mess up the whole thing. Typically, I do it anyway, and it messes up the whole, you know what I mean? It's just like, it's just like a, the, a sore that sticks out. But any great painter, in fact, let me say it like this. The greatest painters aren't the ones who know what to do with a paintbrush. That helps. I think the greatest painters are the ones that know when to put the paintbrush down. This is just my philosophical mind right here, right? Anybody can paint a picture. It might not be good. Anybody can paint a picture, right? But what does it take for an artist to say, this is good, and put the paintbrush down, and trust that even the little things that in your mind you could say, I probably need to fix that, and I probably need to fix that. You know in your mind if I put the paintbrush on one more time, it's going to mess it up you know when to restrain, right? Y'all kind of see where we're going a little bit? Awesome. So Shabbat, Sabbath, was marked by God um, as blessed and set apart. So in Genesis 2, just read one, 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 or a couple, one or three or eight verses, just kidding. Verse 1, so the creation of chapter 2, the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was complete. So the six days, okay? On the seventh day, God finished his work of creation, so he ceased. I don't like the word rested. So he ceased, because rest comes with this connotation that he was tired and he was not. Okay? So on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he ceased from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy, because it was the day when he ceased from all his work of creation. The day when God ceased. An old rabbi teaches that, uh, and I said this if you were in Norway last night, this is going to be a kind of re-saying, but an old rabbi teaches that a lot of people think Yahweh didn't create anything on day seven, and he did. He created Sabbath. I just think that's cool. Okay, so Sabbath starts at sunset. This isn't as, as much as I'm going to talk about Sabbath, it's not a message about Sabbath, but like I said, I'm going to set up the, the point all the way to the end. Sabbath starts at sunset on the sixth day and ends on the seventh day at sunset. Many rabbis point out that this is to remind us that we begin the day with rest, night first. I don't know if you ever caught this. If you read Genesis 1, it doesn't say there was day and then there was night, day one. It says there was night and then there was morning. Isn't that cool? I just, I just think that's awesome. Evening passed and morning came, marking the first day. What, what, what is he saying? You begin the day with rest. And I thought about this. We never think about this. But when does the calendar turn over to another day? At night. So you don't start the day at 5 a.m. or 8 a.m. or 12 p.m. Whenever you wake up, that's not when you start the day. The day's been going. 
by the time you wake up, you're about eight hours into the day. I mean, think about this. Think about this. See, this is the type of stuff nobody ever thinks about. So you've been living in today eight hours by the time you wake up and you've not done anything about it. Right? Every one of your days starts with rest. How do you operate when you don't sleep good at night? I can say from going six months having a, having a baby, we didn't sleep for six months. Not good. Hello? How do you get burned out? By not resting. Okay. So look at the creation story in Genesis 1. Evening and morning is how it's portrayed. Sabbath has three main purposes for the Jews. And I believe we should start recapturing some of this stuff, by the way. But... Sabbath has three main purposes for the Jews. To commemorate creation, number one. Number two, to commemorate Israel's redemption from Egypt. This is per Deuteronomy. And then number three, number three, this is so interesting. Listen to this. Number three, as a taste of the Messianic age. The Jews don't believe Jesus was the Messiah, okay? We obviously know Jesus was the Messiah. So the way you would say that for us is, the Sabbath is a taste of new creation. Are, are you right? Okay, I, I think this is cool. Some of y'all, y'all can go to Cracker Barrel. It's wide open right now. Um, I'm just joking. Okay, so, some have described this as a passing glance at the new creation, the Sabbath day, rest. So for the Israelites hearing this on the cusp of their land of rest, the promised land, they would have understood that God showed restraint in his creative powers and knew when to stop and simply enjoy. They also would have known that rest primarily reminds us that God is in control and we are not, so we can rest under the wings of the Almighty. So let me go and finally start reading what we're going to read today. Genesis 2, I'm going to read 15 through 17, and then I'm going to jump to chapter 3. So, here we go, Genesis 2, 15, start, starts out like this. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden. Verse 17, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Okay, so that's the command. Now jump over to chapter 3. Verse 1, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day, he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. Just to point out, that is actually not what God said. So, she either got that from Adam, or she got it from somebody else. I, if you go back to 15, what I just read, okay? God tells Adam, he tells Adam, not Eve, you may freely eat the fruit of any tree except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. There's nothing in there about touching anything. 
So somewhere between Adam receiving that command and Eve hearing and operating in that command, there was an addition, you better not touch it. Now, I, I personally think this is just Adam saying, like, let's just be safe. Don't even touch it. But we don't know that. Okay, that's just me. So she says, God said, God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die. I mean, how many of y'all hear this conversation going on in your life sometimes? God said, you must not eat it or touch it. If you do, you'll die. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open. And as soon as you eat it, you'll be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw the tree was beautiful. Lord, I could preach so many messages right now. She saw the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. And she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it. Then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. And at that moment, their eyes were open, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. So they sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves when the cool evening breezes were blowing. A lot of us have described the cool of the day as the morning. Remember, remember, to them... It begins at night with rest, okay? So when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Lord, there's so much here. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? Now let me point this out. The Hebrew here, God is not saying, uh, oh, where are you? Like, if I had my phone right here, or actually, if I just, like, left the house, had it sitting on the dresser, came to work, and then I was like, where is my phone? Having no idea where it was, that's not what he's saying. Okay? The equivalent in the Hebrew of what he's saying is, is if I take my phone, place it right here, go to the bathroom, Kyle walks up and grabs my phone and puts it in his pocket. And then I walk back from the bathroom and I go, where is my phone? It's supposed to be right here where I put it. That's what the Hebrew's saying. So when God shows up walking, he's not going. Now, where are Adam and Eve? No, he's, he's going. Where are they? It's supposed to be right here. Where are you? Think about, I think about this. Can you imagine that? Adam, Adam, you're supposed to, where are you? I feel like saying that's what we say to Veda all the time. Veda, where are you, you know? Hiding. <laughs> Did you, just to break this up for a second, when you were a kid, I, so I got uh, lovingly tapped when I was a kid, when I did things wrong, don't want to get my parents arrested. Um, we got spanked. And um, anyway, so I would do something at school. I remember, I'm going to tell on myself, I, I went to a school called Greenwood Christian. Some of y'all might be watching this one at school with me, I don't know. But um, anyway, there was one day, our class was three boys and 18 girls in my second grade class. 
So it was awesome for us. We're like, yeah, this is great. And um, <laughs> and so you know, it's like, praise the Lord. And um, in second grade. So anyway, so it was one day. I had a little football eraser. It was the coolest thing ever. And uh, and I gave it to my best friend, who was his name was Matthew. But there was another boy, the, the third boy in the class. His name was Jacob. And me and him were, like, kind of friends, but, like, weren't as good of friends. You know what I'm saying? And so I gave this football eraser to my best friend. And then the other friend got mad that I didn't give him the football eraser. And so I created a, like, y'all going to hate me so much after I say this. I created a class. I started a class chant that Jacob was a girl. I know. That's before my Jesus days. And, um... <laughs> Even now, it just cuts as I'm saying it. But hey, repentance. Confess your sins to one another. So, so I got taken to the principal's office. They paddled back then. So I was like, well, I'm about to get. And of course, they, you know, they sent little waivers home because your parents had to sign, like, it's okay to get paddled. So I brought mine home. My parents were like, where's the Sharpie? Like, you know, and uh, <laughs> can we sign two of them? And um, so anyway, so I walk in. I'm like, I'm, about, I'm just about to get beat and beat and beat. I didn't get paddled, but I went home, and I knew when my dad got home, it wasn't going to be good. So what did I do? I went in my room, threw on 12 pairs of underwear, and, and you know, and <laughs> walk around my pants like this big, and hid under the covers. So lo and behold, my dad gets home. Josh, where are you? So this is what I hear when I read this. Okay, that was a whole just thing. Just a, just a you know. He's the t- <laughs> yeah, where are you? It's like five in the afternoon. I'm like, you know, pretending like I'm asleep, you know. Uh, <laughs> oh, man. Um, okay, so where are you? Okay, verse 10, verse 10, bring it back. He replied, he replied, Adam, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. How many of y'all know they were naked before? Nothing's changed. I hid because I was naked. Now listen to what he says right here. We're going to spend a little bit of time on this. In a little bit. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you you were naked? The Lord God asked. Who told you that? Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I told you not to eat? And the man replied, not surprising, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Like, shouldn't have given me, like this woman you gave me just brought this fruit. She told me it was from the tree of life. I ate it and then she says, psych. <laughs> just kidding. Verse 13, then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's why I ate it. Now, I'm going to stop right there. I've got so much that I'm not going to go into right now about the serpent here that uh, I'm still trying to pray through. So, anyway, I believe, I can't prove it, I cannot prove it, and I haven't even settled on this. That right there, when the serpent gets cursed, might be where the serpent actually fell. But that's just me. Okay, so, because if you're writing in hindsight, Okay, if you're writing in hindsight, are you going to call Lucifer 
this beautiful angel who's unbelievable, and then when he falls, he's a snake. No, if you're writing about Lucifer from the backside forward, the whole time you're going to be like, there was this snake in the garden that tried to convince. You, you see what I'm saying? So anyway, that's just my theory. That has nothing to do with anything. I just wanted to share that. Maybe you can study it. Okay, so in the garden, in the garden, God places man and woman to enjoy it for them and, excuse me, to enjoy it and for them to enjoy each other. Note, note that God himself planted the garden. That's in chapter 2, verse 8. Okay? They didn't plant the garden. God himself planted the garden. Now, where does that sound familiar? How many of you were here last week? Where does that sound familiar? They're going into the promised land. What does it say in Deuteronomy? We read it last week. This isn't a land like Egypt. This land is a land that the Lord your God takes care of. You, so you see how some of this is starting to line up with them, right? So what is Eden? A garden that the Lord planted and took care of for you to enjoy. What is the promised land? A land that the Lord God set up, watered, did the whole thing for you to enjoy, right? Okay, so, and of course, he made man in his image. That's verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 27, and then again in 2-7. Man did nothing but come to be and enjoy creation. That's it. Do you hear the rest and dependence in that? Man did nothing but rise up out of the dust, get Yahweh to breathe into his nostrils, and then just enjoy creation. He did nothing. Do you hear the, do you hear the rest that man was designed to live in? God created everything and then placed man there. He could have started on day one with man and then said, man, I need you to do this, 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 and this for me because i got to delegate. No. He created everything and then said, now let's put a man there. So do y'all hear the rest in this? The dependence, total dependence in this. Doesn't this sound like what Israel was called to experience? A land Yahweh tends himself battles on their behalf, a land where Yahweh will cause them to prosper, etc. You can start to see the deeper why behind the story when you take it as a whole. So what's in the garden? I'm almost done. Two trees. There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life was game. They could eat it and would have eternal life after eating it. But the tree of knowledge of good and evil offered, as I've taught, wisdom and independence from God. You had one tree that if you eat of it, you get this present reality forever. Then you have another tree that if you eat it, you'll get independence. Eternity in the dependent rest reality or independence. That's what the two trees offered. I'm about to show you all something so cool. Okay? Why would Yahweh, there's so many questions you begin to raise here. Why would Yahweh plant a forbidden tree? Has anybody ever thought about this? These are some of the questions people ask right now. But I'm going to answer this. Why, why in the world would Yahweh plant a tree and then tell them don't eat it? That's like, so Veda loves Barbies. That's like me buying a big load of Barbies from Walmart, sitting them in the living room and saying, hey, you can play with all your other toys, but just don't go touch those. 
right? So why? You begin to ask the question. Why did he plant a forbidden tree? Didn't he know that they would eat it? Why would he plant a tree of life? Weren't they already eternal? The list goes on and on and on. I mean, I mean you could just, you begin to start breaking this down. Uh, their eyes were opened, and then they felt shame at their nakedness. How many of y'all know their eyes were opened from the beginning? So the, their eyes just said, boop, oh man, we can see now. Right? It, it's the, eye, the part of them that was never designed to be opened was opened. So, okay, so remember who's hearing this, okay? So I ask all those questions, but remember who's hearing this for the first time. It's the Israelites in the wilderness, okay? It's as if Yahweh placed Adam and Eve at a crossroads and gave them the chance to respond in love back to him who had shown such love to them. It's as if he played, I'm thinking of the road less travel point. It's as if he had placed them in the middle of a crossroads and he says, I'm going to ask you to choose. Do you want eternity or do you want independence? Your choice. Let me help you out. Don't choose independence. Why, why is this so huge? Because the Israelites are hearing this on their way into the promised land. And you get verses like Deuteronomy 11.26. See if this sounds familiar. Okay? Deuteronomy 11.26 to the Israelites. Look, today I am giving you the choice between a blessing and a curse. That's what he tells the Israelites. Same people who are here in Genesis for the first time. You get eternity like this in the garden, or let's say the promised land. Or you get independence from God and try to do better on your own. Or... Another way you could say this, translation to the Israelites, getting into the land and worshiping false gods and forgetting Yahweh who brought you here. He's, as they're hearing this story, what would have started going off in their heads is, we're about to go into a promised land, and we better not make the same mistake as Adam and Eve. When we get there, we better not forget who God is and why he gave us this garden, this promised land, we better not turn away to other gods. We better not get in the land. And he tells them in Deuteronomy over and over and over. When you get there and you're rich and all your dreams have come true and everything's great, don't forget where you were when I found you. That's what he tells them, right? So they're hearing this story, and it's as if Yahweh is trying to give them a glimpse into the nature they were born into so that they would choose something else this time. Y'all with me? Okay, I'm still setting it up. I promise you we're about to get to the end i only got one more, two more, three more pages. I mentioned this earlier. So for, for a sculptor or an artist, it's when to say no that matters. Emmanuel Shalev says this. He's a scholar. says this. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was planted to give Adam and Eve a choice. Okay. Rabbi David Foreman says this, who has a book that's unbelievable. I'll share it with you all later. Uh, says this, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil shows man that it is not beast. That it's actually like God. That like God on day seven, it can say no. Think of, think of the implications to Israel and then to us. You ready? This entire story 
of Genesis 3 in the fall. Why would God put a, a tree in the garden? Why would he put the tree of life? Why would he tell them not to eat it, knowing they would do so? What was he doing? Think about this. Of all other creatures that God created, none of them have what we would call, I guess, free will. In other words, if a bear gets hungry, a bear's not going to say, you know what, I need to shed a few pounds, so I'm going to hold off on this meal. Right? Doesn't do that. Beasts have no restraint. None. No restraint. What was the, all, the whole creation story? Where did it climax? God knowing when to say enough. Sabbath. Knowing when to rest. Knowing when to cease. Okay? And then you get into chapter 2. That's all about where man was created. And then you get into chapter 3 where man is given the choice to be what they were created like God. Right? Where in that moment they get the opportunity to say, either I'm going to restrain and know when to say no, or like the beast, I'm going to say yes and try to gain my independence. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil was an opportunity for them to live in the likeness of God and be able to not just say yes, 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 but also know when to say no. So the Israelites hearing this get all these commands and all the commands hinge on not this big giant checklist of to do, to do, to do. They all hinge on if you don't live in your identity, you're going to do this. Have no other gods before me is easy. What do you do? Worship God. It takes work to worship idols. It takes work to commit murder. It takes work to commit adultery. But if you rest, if you know when to Sabbath, if you know when to say no and trust, all of a sudden you find yourself living fully in the reality of, for us, Jesus. Think about Jesus when he's tested in the wilderness and how it connects back to this story. It, the devil, if you bow down before me, if you bow down before me, I'll give you what you came for. This is what the devil tells Jesus. He's in the wilderness fasting 40 days. He says, if you'll bow before me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. That's what he came for, right? Could have avoided the cross. Could have avoided the whole thing. And just bowed down before the devil. Let, let me say, how, how does this sound? God said you must not eat it or touch it or you will die. You won't die. He's crazy. Then you get to Jesus. And you don't have to go through this whole cross thing. Just bow down before me, I'll give you what you want. And what, what does he say? He says no. He knows how to restrain himself. He's living in the creative power of God, which is marked not by what he can do. It includes what he can do, but it's marked by something that no other beast can do, which is know when to say no, to stop, and to enjoy. And the thing that in our culture today is the most lacking thing is people not knowing when to say enough. We, we have TV shows, we have social media, we have politicians, and we have superstars that are telling us, yes, go, 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 and we do not know when to say stop and no. We don't. 
You, you could work on the weekend and make a lot more money, or you could spend time with your family. You've got to make the decision. Do you know when to stop, or do you not know when to stop, and you live like a beast? This, this is what marks us in the image of God. Because beasts know when to say yes. What marks us as people who are like God is we have the capability of knowing when to cease. Do you do y'all see that? This is massive for us. This is why rest is so important. Rest, Sabbath, this whole idea. In fact, most Jewish scholars teach that Sabbath was actually a name for God. So knowing when to stop, knowing when to cease, marked us as holy. What does he say in the Sabbath? He rested on the seventh day. He ceased on the seventh day from all his work. He blessed it and declared it set apart, holy. Right? What does Peter tell us? Be holy as I am holy. It's impossible to be holy as he is holy unless you know when to say stop. Are y'all with me? I know it's late. I know you're tired. This Genesis 3, this is what happens when we buy into the lie that Yahweh is fickle and a manipulative God. The serpent told them that God had withheld something good from them by telling them to not eat of the tree of knowledge. This is what he tells you. You won't die. He just knows when you eat that, your eyes will be open. He's withheld from you. You don't die. He's actually withheld from you. This is the God most people believe in, that he's fickle, that he's manipulative, that he's working things out just for his personal gain, usually at the demise of everybody else. This is the God people believe in. And it ain't this God. It's a false God. Then what does Eve do? She convinced herself that the tree was beautiful and the fruit looked good. To be clear, God did withhold from them. I mean, just to clear it up, he did withhold. He withheld independence. Why? Because what happens when you give independence to a creature designed to be restfully dependent on the goodness of a creator? Destruction. What happens when you give a kid that's never driven a car before the keys and say, go drive a car? Wreck. Right? What happens when you get most people around here that have a license key, you know? But, right? Because kids, Veda was not designed in her current state to drive a car. She was designed to ride in the car with somebody that knows how to drive. Are y'all with me? So we were not designed for independence. When you begin to give independence to creatures of dependence, the only possible outcome is destruction. So us thinking we got this is us saying we're headed straight for doom and straight for destruction when we should be saying, I seek first the kingdom of God because that's the only possible way to get to a kingdom come, will be done reality. Think about this. When Jesus said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, I feel like I could spend 10 decades teaching on that and not even get close your kingdom come, your will be done. How many of you know that Yahweh operates on eternal time? Just, just for a moment, we're going to turn up our brains real high and think through this. Okay? 
just for a moment. I told Ellington last week, I was like, if everybody would just use their brain for two weeks this year, it'd be so refreshing. But not y'all, but just in the world. But um, anyway, think about this, okay? We operate in time. We operate in seasons. So a lot of you are ready for me to finish up. Why? Because you know it's almost 12, right? So we operate in a timed manner. So when God takes two years to fulfill something you thought was only going to take a week, what do you start doing? You start stressing, you start getting anxious, you start doubting God, you start becoming atheist, whatever. You know, you know, like we just start traveling down this road. And it's not because of God, it's because of time. Yahweh exists in eternity. And if I could prove it to you, you and I who are saved also should exist in eternity. What do you say? For God so loved the cosmos, Jordan hates that word, that he gave his only begotten, it is a weird word, that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish, that's die. And if you don't die, guess what? You got eternity. So we are operating on eternity. Now think about this. When Jesus says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, what does he mean by kingdom? He means the entirety of the kingdom of God coming to the earth and reigning. What does the kingdom of God operate on? eternal time. So when he's teaching your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, he's not just talking about physical things. He's even talking about the way we view time. I've got to get you out of the mindset is what he's saying. I've got to get you out of the mindset that this is taking too long or this is going too fast or this is because of time. I've got to get you into the mindset of the way I see things, which is eternity. So God doesn't judge. Let me help, help you all out. He doesn't judge anything based on how long it's going to take. The, the thought never crosses the mind of Yahweh. Man, this is just going to take too long. Why? Because he's got eternity. That's not a thing to him. So his only prerogative is how is this, whatever this is, going to be accomplished in the best way? His only prerogative. How many of y'all know the way to do something in the best way is to do it slow? I'm not going to make it to the NFL tomorrow, but if I work out for the next 10 years, I might be able to make it to the NFL. Still probably won't, but do y'all see what I'm saying? Right? You, you can't, if you're slow cooking a meal, you throw it in the microwave, it's going to taste terrible. If you put it in the crock pot and let it simmer for a little while, what's going to happen? It's going to taste amazing. The same, the same food, start cooking that bark, and then let it, let it simmer in the oven for a little while, bring it to church one day. No, it's good. But, man, I've been waiting for Christmas all year long just for that. But, Right? He doesn't think this is going to take. So when we start getting in the mindset, this is taking too long. When we get in that mindset, we're not thinking in the same frequency as Yahweh's thinking. He don't care how long it takes. He really don't. All he cares about this thing, he cares about this thing getting done right. So the mindset of we've got to hurry and save the world because we're leaving, that's not how he's thinking. He's thinking we've got to absolutely save the world, but the first thing I need to do is get 120 set on fire. You know what I'm saying? We, we want to go out and reach 10,000 people at a conference. 
That ain't how this works. This happens when 120, when a handful of people get so convinced that he is who he said he is and that he's going to do what he said he's going to do, that we're willing to wait in an upper room as long as it takes until he gives us what we promised. I'm willing to sit in this church for year after year after year after year because I'm not here for this to be done fast. I'm here for this to be done right. I'm here for him to do everything that he spoke over my life and over your life, if it takes me 5,000 years, I'm okay with that. If we see Columbia saved by the year 3,000, promise fulfilled. And, and some, some of y'all, and I'm speaking to the camera because some of y'all in the room have been here long enough to know this is crazy. Some of y'all are so convinced we're not going to be here next week that all you're doing is packing your bags and getting ready to get out. And I'm telling you today that if we don't have a mindset that we might be here for a long time, I think it's a better thing that we're here for a long time. If we don't have that mindset, we will never see his kingdom come and his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What? He didn't, he didn't, your kingdom come, your will be done. I'm going to come get y'all out. We're going to rapture up and we're going to have a party in heaven. No, he said, your kingdom come, your will be done here. How many of you have seen his kingdom come and his will be done here yet? I haven't. You know what that means? We're still going to be here. Why does it mean that? Because Isaiah 55 says, no word that leaves his mouth returns void. So if he said, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, we will be here as long as it takes for a group of people to get so convinced of who they are, we actually start to see that promise fulfilled. And until then, we better buckle up and get ready because we're going to be here. I, I know that people hate that stuff, but I don't understand why we've gotten in this mindset that being here is bad. When did we do that? When did, y'all, I get so fiery when we get to this. But I, we're, we're losing the world because we're so convinced we're leaving. A lot of people are going to be real surprised that as they're leaving, he's coming right down the opposite way. When he comes back, he does not intend to leave. He comes back to reign. I wouldn't want to be on the train that leaves. Well, brother, well, brother, what about First Thessalonians? I've read First Thessalonians, and I'm telling you, the way your King James Bible translates it ain't right. I, I get so passionate about this because we're losing our legacy. One third of the church has disengaged with the church in 2020. Do you know why? Because all their parents were convinced we were leaving in the morning. If y'all want, if y'all, you just wanted me to be real. We were, we're more convinced about the rapture than we are about Jesus Christ Himself. I feel this all over me because I think Jesus wants to get us to wake up. We've forgotten our first love. He told, do you, let me just help you. Let me just help y'all out for a minute. Lord, help us. In First Thessalonians, here we go. Let me, let me just, because we're just here, and we've got to get convinced of this. We're never going to rest if we think that this is all blowing up in a few years. So I'm glad we got, I fly away has been the, the death of the church. I'm just kidding. All right. Brother, don't touch off our way. First uh, Thessalonians four. Listen to this. I'm. I'm on. Let me just. Beloved brothers and sisters. Here we go. We want you to be quite certain about the truth concerning those who have passed away, so that you won't be overwhelmed with grief like many others have, who have no hope. For we believe that 
Jesus died and rose again. We also believe that God will bring with Jesus those who died while believing in him. This is the word of the Lord. We, here we go. We who are alive in him and remain on the earth when the Lord appears will by no means have an advantage over those who have already died. For both will rise together. Talking about resurrection. For the Lord himself will appear with a declaration of victory, the shout of an archangel, and the trumpet blast of God. He will descend from the heavenly realm and command those who are dead in Christ to rise first. Then those who are alive will join them, transported together in clouds to have an encounter with the Lord in the air, and we will be forever joined with the Lord, so encourage one another with these truths. That phrase, that set of verses right there is why the American church exclusively, nowhere else in the world, believes in the rapture. That verse, that, that, those couple of verses. So, Paul's writing to the first Thessalonians, to the, not first Thessalonians, to the Thessalonians. Okay, in Roman culture, where Roman, um, the Roman Empire was built, it was built along a bunch of fault lines. So they were very susceptible to a lot of uh, earthquakes. So Thessalonian, the Thess- Thessalonica was unique because they had multiple devastating earthquakes in this group of people's lifetime. Typically, there would have been one. Um, Colossi doesn't exist anymore because an earthquake destroyed it, and they didn't think it was worth rebuilding. So, you know, so they were very susceptible to earthquakes. What would happen is, is when there was an earthquake, there'd be total destruction because obviously they didn't have the infrastructure we have today. Y'all with me? So what would happen is the emperor would go into a place that's been ravished. He would assess the damage. He would look around and he would determine an amount of money that needed to be left in order for the people to rebuild the city. And here was the only caveat. The caveat was the city needed to be rebuilt better than it was before. And then he would leave. And then there would be a span of time where the city would take this money and they would rebuild. But again, the caveat, it had to be better than it was before. So after a time has passed, the emperor would come back to see what they did with the money. Are y'all hearing Jesus is talking all this? If not, go back and read. The emperor would come back. And when the emperor came back, a couple of things happened. Y'all ready? There was a trumpet blast. A trumpet blast. There was a cemetery at the beginning entrance of every Roman city because they honored the dead for what they had done in the past. So there was a trumpet blast. The entire city would leave the city. They would meet the emperor outside of the city. And together, hand in hand, metaphorically, they would walk in to the city to show the emperor what had been done with what he left them. The Greek word is parousia, that. The Greek word Paul uses to the Thessalonica church is parousia. What's he saying? Just to give you a backstory, the Thessalonians, I don't know, this is even my notes, Thessalonians, He's writing First and Second Thessalonians because they had done a couple of things. They had started quitting all their jobs. They had started letting go of all their responsibilities and basically stopped living because they were convinced that Jesus' return was imminent. This is all from history books, okay? That Jesus, so Paul is writing them saying, don't quit your job. 
don't stop working. Jesus' coming is going to be a parousia. Thessalonica would have known this well because this happened to them not just once, but twice. Very relevant. So when Jesus comes back, by the way, there's no scripture about the third coming of Jesus. So just put that in your pocket. When Jesus comes back, he's coming back. The dead are going to raise again, rise again. We're going to meet him in the air, and together we're going to come into the proverbial city, the new creation, New Jerusalem, to reign with him forever. And he's coming back to see what we have done with what he left us. I mean, if you just want the Greek, right? Well, bro, well brother, I don't... Listen, you can, we can sit down and put it on cruise control all you want, but I am planning on building the kingdom of Yahweh on earth as it is in heaven until we see his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. I'm, I'm not sitting around waiting until I die, float away on a cloud with a harp. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to host his presence in such a way that he actually begins to transform the land. And the leaves of the trees become for the healing of the nations. And the entire city of Columbia begins to be transformed by the light that flows from his presence that is present here. Not there. Here. On earth as it is in heaven. I mean, we, some of y'all need to get in your Bible and go to that passage and circle earth. On earth as it is in heaven. So why do we rest? Why do we understand that this is a choice? Why is there a tree of knowledge? Why do we have choices on a daily basis? Because Yahweh is trying to get us into the mindset that we're actually made in his image and likeness. That we're actually like him. That we're not another. That we're not a beast. That we're like him and we know when to say yes and we sure know when to say no. Right? Man, y'all are real quiet. I start talking about the rap. Y'all get real quiet. If you don't know who you are, Matt, go ahead and come up here. If you don't know who you are and who he is, you'll start looking at things that Yahweh told you not to eat of and begin eating of them because you'll convince yourself that they look good. If you don't know who you are or who he says you are, You'll start looking at things Yahweh told you not to eat of and begin eating of them because you'll convince yourself they look good. What you're doing by partaking of what he told you to avoid is ultimately gaining independence. And this 100% of the time ends in destruction. You were designed for rest, trust, and yes, blessing. But you can only have those if you learn to live a life of Sabbath, knowing not just when to say yes, but when to say no. Relationships, like do you know if somebody comes up and they look great and they talk great and it's like, man, this might be the one, but you just have this feeling deep down inside. Y'all know what I'm talking about. This feeling deep down inside of, man, something's just not clicking. Do you know when to say no? Your career. All of us know when to say yes, but do you know when to say no? Your life choices, ministry, money, etc. We are not beast. 
We are image bearers who know when to say no to the things he has told us to say no to because we trust that he is good. So I don't see people going out and partying and say, okay, I know I'm not supposed to do that, but man, that looks good. Right? I say, Yahweh is good. So if he told me to say no to that, it must be good. Do you see how this shifts? See, we convince ourselves, and when I was in high school, we spent so much time at youth group not convincing ourselves of what's right and wrong. We spent so much time trying to talk about what was so close to wrong but still right. Anybody remember that in youth group? Like, man, so I get what we can't do, but what can we do until we get to the point that it crosses the line? Right? Because we spent so much time in our lives learning how much yes we can say because we're convinced he's withheld good things from us. And I, let me, if he's withheld anything from you, it's for your own good. If Yahweh has withheld, and I know this is tough for people, if Yahweh has withheld something from you, you've just got to trust he did it because he's good. You've got to be convinced he's good before you do anything else in this life or every moment you get the sense that he's told you to say no to something, you'll start questioning whether or not he's good. You won't question the thing he told you to say no to. You'll question Yahweh himself that told you to say no. So this is what I tell people all the time. If we could learn to say yes to him, it will produce a no to everything that he told us to say no to. See, I don't have to go around and say, I shouldn't do this. I shouldn't look at this. I shouldn't go lie to this person. I shouldn't uh, covet somebody else. I shouldn't commit adultery. I don't go around convincing myself to say no. I spend every day of my life giving him such a yes that it produces a no to every inferior thing. Y'all with me? So I want to end with this. I want to end with this. Man, I wanted to make a Hebrews 4, but we'll do it next week. <clears throat> Let me end with this. Genesis 10, 3, 10 and 11. He says, who told you you were naked? I told you I was going to come back to this. This is where I want to end. Adam and Eve were always naked. They were always naked. Nothing changed. He comes in and says, who told you you were naked? Let me help you out. There are parts of you that Yahweh designed for the world to see his image through that the world has tried to redefine for you as a negative. And I say, I, I just, I see Yahweh in this story going, who told you you were ugly? Who told you you weren't good enough? Who told you that you're not worth that? Who, do you hear this? He's not saying like, well, who, who told y'all y'all were, how'd y'all figure that out? They knew they were naked. That's not what he's saying. Who told you you were naked? Here's what he said. Who told you nakedness was a bad thing? Because immediately when they choose independence, they start trying to hide what has always been out in the open. Yahweh knit you together in your mother's womb with something extraordinary. Ephesians says in the Passion Translation, you are the poetic expression of God. You are the expression of his artistry in creation. He knit you individually, specifically for a purpose only you can fulfill. And what the world wants to do is try to tell you, you should probably cover that thing up. 
Oh, by the way, do you, you're naked. Here's the thing. Nobody told them they were naked. Check this out in the story. Now, there's not one verse where the devil goes, oh, by the way, you guys are naked. I don't know if y'all knew that. Somebody, you know what, he, what does he say? Who told you you were naked? Nobody told them. Or did they? Did they convince themselves that nakedness was a bad thing because they had just gained independence? And then they have offspring of Cain and Abel that begins to murder each other because one sees God as favorable, the other one sees God as what? Withholding. So I wonder today, I'm going to end up with this. I just wonder today, how many of us, one, have no idea what it means to rest? Have no idea what it means to say no? What does it mean to remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy? I think some of us need to start honoring this Sabbath day because we don't know how to rest. If you go to Hebrews 4, Sabbath is supposed to be a, an entire lifestyle, not just a day. Okay, But I wonder, what would it look like for us to rhythmically on a weekly basis, have a day where we cease and know that he's God. Where we just stop, where we learn how to say no. How does that differ from everybody else around you at your job? When they're going, 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 going. Hey, what are you doing this weekend? I'm going to just rest. Yeah, but we got this project coming up. That's all right. I'm going to just rest and trust God's got it. At school, right? What does this look like? I need to study. I need to do this. What does it look like to have a day to just be still and know? And then number two, I think there's people that have hid their nakedness. And in nakedness, you could put your skill. You could put the way you look. You could put any of that stuff. I think there's people that have tried to hide your nakedness because through a, a incomplete view of God, you've started seeing yourself as other than. You see yourself as in the image of a God who withholds rather than a God who is Yahweh. So I want to I just pray for those. And then if either of those are you or just however you need to respond to this in this moment, you respond. But I'm going to pray. Yahweh, I pray that you would allow us to be a people of rest. That every single thing we do will come from rest that we will learn to seek first. Look at the flowers of the field. They don't do anything, and yet they're clothed better than any other human being. The birds of the air do nothing but go and find the food that you feed them with on a day-in, day-out basis. How much more are we worth than the birds of the air and the flowers of the field? So we shouldn't worry about our life, what we'll eat or what we'll drink or what we'll wear, but we need to seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness and trust that all these things shall be added unto us. For your glory, Lord, let us be a people of rest. Show us what it looks like to rest. Show us what it looks like to be naked and unashamed. Show us what it looks like to reveal to the world the very thing the world tried to conceal in us because that very thing is the peace that we were designed to explore and to show the world the image of God through. What does it look like to be naked and unashamed where we stop hiding we stop hiding who we are. We stop hiding behind the curtain of independence. And instead, we're still, we're dependent, we're rested. And then in rest, we allow ourselves to be completely vulnerable to the world, to everything you've designed us for. 
let that be for us this week. Lord, would you spark something in us to explore what it means to rest, to explore what it means to trust you, and ultimately to know who you are and who we are. Lord, I love you. I love you. In your name, amen.